Father, I pray for your grace and your mercy this morning. Pray that I might know it as I preach. I pray that we all might know it as your word is proclaimed. You know the state of every heart and mind as we come in here. Lord, we need to hear from you. We need to feed on you. We need to be encouraged and challenged and convicted. We need to be woken up from the slumber that we've been in all week. We need our eyes lifted up to you, to your throne, to your beauty and grace once more. So I pray that you would do that this morning. In the name of Jesus, amen. Well, for the past few weeks, we've been making our way through the book of Daniel. And this morning, we come to the first of two very familiar stories in the book. This is the fiery furnace. The story reinforces two of the major themes that we have considered thus far. The first theme, in the words of Old Testament scholar Tremper Longman, is that in spite of present appearances, God is in control. In spite of present appearances, God is in control. And we've seen this theme repeatedly. Apparently, we need to be reminded of it. God shows himself faithful in one stressful, difficult situation, then another new situation arises and we need to see it again, that he is in control. In our present cultural and political moment, we really need to be reminded of this every week, every day. We need to hold on to it because there's always something, whether it's personally for us, whether it's something at large in the culture that feels threatening, that feels discouraging, that we are prone to worry about. Daniel 1 through 3, there's actually a progression of this increasing intensity. Every scene is kind of more scary than the one before it. There's a bigger crisis than the last one. And every time we see God showing up, reminding people that he's in control. And at the end of that scene, we have a pagan king uh, falling down and, and paying homage to some way of God and God's people, in this case, Daniel or his three friends. So in chapter 1, Looked at that a couple weeks ago. Uh, We have the exile, that God's people are taken from their land. They're taken to serve this pagan king in Babylon. But we saw through that how God was in control and how he delivered Daniel and his three friends from this, how he provided for health for them and their choices to do a different diet. We saw that God was really the one providing for health and strength and wisdom. And then in chapter two, um, there was another crisis. Now there's this execution order that goes out for the wise men because they can't interpret and tell Nebuchadnezzar the dream. Daniel and his friends are caught up in that, but they pray, they cry out to God that he gives wisdom, he gives interpretation, the content of the dream, and they are once again delivered. And then this morning, we'll see it's even more intense. Now there's an execution order that's actually carried out, but once again, we see how God is in control. It's not just God's people who need reminding of that fact. It's also the watching world. In this case, that's represented by Nebuchadnezzar. He needs to be reminded repeatedly that God is sovereign and he is not. So in chapter one, he didn't really see it, but we, the readers, saw it that 
hey, it's really God that's in control, doing the diet thing, strengthening his people, not you, Nebuchadnezzar. It's not the food from your table, sorry. And then chapter two, he did see it. He saw that, wow, your God is a great God, that he can reveal mysteries. And then this morning, chapter three, he's gonna act like a fool again. He just confessed God, but now he, he forgot that lesson. And again, God will remind him who's in charge. And then chapter four, next week, looking ahead, um, he's gonna start chapter four kind of praising God. It, it looks like, well, has he converted somehow? But then his pride will take over. He'll act like an idiot again, and God will big time humble him. You'll see that next week in chapter four. So that's our first theme. In spite of present appearances, there's a lot of present appearances, God is in control. And then the second theme that keeps getting reinforced is uh, really how, how we're called to live in this world, that we're supposed to do this, this balancing act of living faithfully in the world. And if you were here the first couple of weeks, you remember the image of the seesaw, right? You're trying to keep your balance and you have to put your weight on two um, different places. One is this call that we have to engage the culture, to seek the shalom of the city, to actually be out there bearing witness and caring for people. Even if it's the so-called secular culture, we're meant to be out there. And so we put one foot over on that part of the seesaw. And yet at the same time, we're also called to resist the influence of the world, to resist the way that it corrupts us and tricks us and deceives us. We're called to seek holiness. And so that's the other foot on the seesaw. And we're balancing between those two things. Easy to go too far one way or too far the other way. And we've seen Daniel and his friends um, deal with that. Different circumstances, but same call to live faithfully in the world. Today, we're going to see what an act of resistance looks like. We're going to see what it looks like to say, hey, we're serving, we're out there, we're with this pagan king, and yet there are lines that we cannot cross, and we must seek holiness. And in doing that, there is often a price to pay. So these are the couple of themes that keeps getting repeated. God's sovereignty, us living faithfully in the world. But the thing about these two themes, this is key, they're connected. The second is dependent on the first. In order to live faithfully in the world, to have the wisdom and the grace and the power to to both resist well and engage well, we need to know God's sovereignty. We need to know his character. It's easy to make heroes out of Daniel and his friends, but really they were just four men who knew the character, who knew the sovereignty of God, who rested in that. God is the real hero who shows up again and again in the book of Daniel. He is the one who is acting powerfully, sometimes behind the scenes and sometimes quite apparently. So this morning, I want to take a look at this pretty familiar story. If you've grown up in the church, you've probably heard it before. Maybe you saw the VeggieTales uh, version of this. The problem with VeggieTales is once you see one of those, you can never quite get it out of your head when you read that text again. Eric and I were joking about the bunny uh, if you've seen the, this rendition, you know the bunny, the bunny. Well, that's not exactly how the story went. So we're going to take a look at it again. And I want to look at it through three different perspectives, really through three different characters. First, we're going to see the idolatry of Nebuchadnezzar. Second, the resistance of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And third, the deliverance of God himself. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them to Daniel chapter 3. So first, the idolatry of Nebuchadnezzar. As I mentioned at the end of chapter 2, 
in response to this miraculous revelation of Nebuchadnezzar's dream, uh, he responds by saying, truly, your God is the God of gods. He's the Lord of kings. That sounds like pretty good theology. We might even mistake it for a conversion. It seems like he's recognizing God's sovereignty over all. But then that chapter ends, chapter three begins, and the first thing we read is King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold. The king made an idol. It was a very impressive idol. It was 90 feet high. It was nine feet wide. He set it up on the plain of Dura in Babylon, and then he gathered together everyone and said, come, come to the dedication of this idol. All the governing officials were there. The satraps, prefects, governors, counselors, treasurers, justice, magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces. Imagine a presidential inauguration on steroids. Everyone is there. And they're all gazing up at this giant image. And then they're told, a herald proclaims what they want, they, what they are commanded to do. When you hear the music, you are commanded, not requested, you're commanded to fall down and worship the image. No exceptions, no religious exemptions. You bow down and worship or you will be cast into the fiery furnace. Why a fiery furnace? Where did that show up in the story? Well, we're not told this directly, but scholars suspect that it's the fiery furnace used to make the idol. And it was right there in the vicinity of the idol. And so in this very strange twist of irony, if you don't worship the idol, you will be destroyed by the thing that made the idol. Now, we have all been raised in a monotheistic culture, right? We, we, we know this one God idea. And so we can't understand how he can declare a chapter earlier that God's the God of gods and king of kings. And then just a little while later, he's setting up an idol and saying, everyone worship that. To a monotheist, regardless of what particular form you are, that's unthinkable. There's only one God to be worshipped. But to a pagan king in the ancient world who worshipped multiple gods and plenty of idols around, this wasn't such a big deal. Nor would it have been a big violation of conscience for the governing officials that were invited. Sure, they could bow down to another idol. Why not? So many gods in the mix, this wasn't a big deal. It was the political expedient thing to do after all. The person in power demanded that they worship in a particular way. So that's what they did. As the scene unfolds, we begin to see Nebuchadnezzar's pride come through more and more. He put up this shiny image. He demanded that people worship, bow down to the image. He's not directly saying that you should worship me. Babylonian kings didn't do that. But it's quite clear that behind the golden image, stands Nebuchadnezzar himself. He made the image after all. He set it up. And the text, if you read it, points this out repeatedly. Multiple times it'll say the image and then it's followed by this phrase that Nebuchadnezzar set up. Which image? Oh yeah, the one that the king really created and put there. Who's this idol worship really about? It's pretty apparent. It's about Nebuchadnezzar. And if we had any doubts about that, then when these three Jews refuse to worship the image, his true colors really come out. And we see what he is really thinking about. 
He brings in Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They're brought in for questioning. He gives them a chance to repent, to still bow down to the image. He repeats the threat. If you don't, I'll throw you in the furnace. And then he concludes with these words. Don't miss these words. These are one of the key parts of the whole narrative. Verse 15, listen to what he says. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? He just called Daniel's God, the God of gods, but he's long since forgotten that. His pride swells up. He sets himself up over the gods. Now the three Jews refuse, of course. We'll see that in a minute. And when they do, Nebuchadnezzar goes into a rage. We're literally told that the image of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It's another play on words. When these three men refuse to worship his golden image, the one he had set up, his true image comes out. And it's an ugly one. He's in a blind rage. He's furious. He He's so mad he turns up the heat on the fire and his mighty soldiers that gather up the three men, they're actually killed because he's just crazy. He just throw them in and he's damaging his own people. Why is he so mad? What's this all about? This is the key to understand the nature of idolatry. I don't think he's mad because he's a devout worshiper. And he's offended that these three men have not submitted to his God. Nebuchadnezzar is mad because they have defied him. Behind this towering golden image, another image looms larger, that of the king himself. He's in charge. What he says goes, how dare anyone defy his sovereign will? Easy to judge Nebuchadnezzar, isn't it? What an idolater, what a pagan. But in him, we actually see a picture of ourselves and our society. And ironically, I think the person that diagnoses this the best came some 2,000 years later, 2,500 years later after Nebuchadnezzar. It was this philosopher. We, we know him best by his declaration that God is dead, Friedrich Nietzsche. I think he got this better than most people get this. His conclusion of God being dead, what we know him for, was actually an outworking of his understanding of the self. Listen to his own words. But let me reveal my heart to you entirely, my friends. If there were gods, how could I endure not to be a god? Hence, there are no gods. Friedrich Nietzsche looked into his heart. He looked into humanity. He saw our desire to want to sit on the throne. And so his conclusion was, well, there must not be gods if I can't stand not to be a god. He got that part of the human heart that we all want to sit on the throne of our own universe. Once that happens, once we're on the throne, the human self is sitting there sovereign. What do we do? We set up idols. We set up idols, little ones, big ones, shiny ones, gold ones. John Calvin said that the human mind is a factory of idols. We crank them out. And then we demand that everyone pay homage to our idol that we've created. We might put up something shiny and say, it's about that, but it's not really about that, is it? It's really about the self that's sitting on the throne. Old Testament scholar Tremper Longman describes it like this. Again, our moment 
He writes, here is the heart of modern, postmodern society. In the absence of the gods, we may and must create our own meaning. No longer does Christ provide meaning. No longer do we feel the existential nausea of no meaning. We feel the will to power and the joy in constructing our own meaning in the absence of the gods. All substitutes for God are ultimately this idol, the idol of self. So if we want to understand idolatry, whether ancient or modern, we must pull back the golden veneer and see behind it the human self pursuing its own will and desires. That's the nature of idolatry, which Nebuchadnezzar shows us so clearly. Hold on to that idea. We're going to come back to it. But second, I want to look at the resistance of the three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These three men were not participating in the festivities. We're not sure if they were there. It seems like maybe they were there in the background. Maybe they hadn't come. But somehow they had quietly uh, stepped back from this massive violation of their conscience. Because for them to bow down and to worship this image would break the first two commandments. You shall have no other gods and you shall not have any graven images. Well, they might have gotten away with it. Didn't seem like the king noticed except for the interference of these malicious wise men who were probably jealous that they had risen through the ranks so quickly. And so they schemed against Shagrat, Meshach, and Abednego. They brought it to the attention of the king. Hey, these three, they're not participating. And as they did that, they had this way of stoking the fires of his ego. Oh, king, live forever. Oh, king, you have made a decree. Oh, king, these men pay no attention to you. Well, it works. He's like putty in their hands. The king is furious. He drags them in for questioning. He gives them a chance to repent, to bow down. But listen to their response, verse 16 and following. Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. A direct response to verse 15 to Nebuchadnezzar's question, who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? And the three men say, it is our God. It is Yahweh. He will deliver us. But then they continue in verse 18 in their response. It's one of the most striking parts of a story. They say, but if not, but if he doesn't deliver us, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. They don't know what God's gonna do. They're not being triumphalist. They're not flexing their muscles. They're not being prideful. They believe that God is able to deliver them, but they don't know if he will or how he will. And we have to keep in mind that this is before a fully developed theology of resurrection. This is before all the promises that we have about life after death in Jesus. So they're looking into the face of death. They're knowing that it's coming for them. And they're saying, we don't understand how or when or God will deliver us, but we think he will. And regardless, we're not going to bow down. God called these men to serve in a pagan empire to not hide away, but to be out there in the world, to seek the shalom of the city, to be a blessing, to engage. 
And yet, while they were out there, they were going to encounter the corrupting, the wicked influence of the world. There's no way around that. If you're out there, you're going to see it. You're going to come up against it. And they're on that seesaw. Resistance, engagement. And in this particular moment, they know that they have to resist. They cannot violate their conscience and their faith. We will not worship your idols. Friends, the idol of self looms large in our culture. Increasingly, people of faith are being told to bow down to the sovereign right of every individual to do what they want. We're being told that it's the sovereign right of an individual to select their own gender and you must respect that. We're being told that it's the sovereign right of a person to marry whoever they wish based on their sexual preferences. We're being told it's the sovereign right that a woman has complete dominance over her own body, including any life that may be inside of her. These issues, they get dressed up in all this political rhetoric and all this fighting. And sometimes we we put the gold images around it with, with language like, well, civil rights. But if we could set all of that aside and we could just look at it as for what it is, it's the idol of self. It's seated on the throne and it's setting up idols. It's making the calls of what is good and right. You see, when God is kicked up to heaven, or when he's locked into the privacy of one's own heart or home, then the self can sit on the throne and do whatever he or she wants. It can reign supreme. It can set up idols. That's what's happening around us. And we should not be surprised. We should not lose our heads in these moments or declare that the sky is falling. We should expect this. But like the three friends, we're called to resist. And yet what we resist and how we resist is important. This is where we can easily get confused. We can go down the wrong road. Apostle Paul reminds us that our battle is not against flesh and blood. We're not against other people. We're not resisting gay people or transgender people. We're not really even resisting a political party or an ideology. We're not resisting women and and their choices. We're resisting the idol of self that sits on the throne. And by the way, we have to acknowledge that it's not just out there, it's in here. We are idol factories. We put our own self on the throne every day, don't we? We need to be like the guy, the tax collector, Luke 18, who goes up to the temple to pray and says, have mercy on me, God, a sinner, because I am an idolater. I do this all the time. I set myself on the throne. Our resistance is humble because we know we're part of the problem. Our resistance is never mean-spirited, is never rude, it is not triumphalist. It is simply a declaration to ourselves, to the culture of a reality. We're not imposing this on reality, we're exposing what is in reality, that there is a God and he alone sits on the throne. He alone gets to decide what is good and true and right. We can try to take that from him, but we don't actually accomplish it. There are no other gods before him, including the God of self. So Nietzsche was right. He was right in exposing what he saw in the human heart that we all want to take the place of God. But Nietzsche was also dead wrong. God is not and will never be dead. And any effort to replace him with self-rule, no matter how much gold we put on it, will end in despair and the gnashing of teeth. We must be out there graciously proclaiming 
in the culture, including through our resistance, that the idol of self is a usurper and a trickster and it will in the end leave us empty and sad and alone. And so we must resist. But when we resist, there will be consequences. We shouldn't be surprised by that. If we refuse to pay homage to the idol of self, the heat will be turned up. We shouldn't be out there whining and complaining about that. We shouldn't grow bitter. We shouldn't abandon culture altogether. And yet we should calmly, prophetically declare, our God is able to deliver us. And even if he does not, we will never bow down to the idol of self. Third and finally this morning, let's take a look at the deliverance of God. Well, in his fury, Nebuchadnezzar did turn up the heat. He ordered his strong men to bind them, clothes and all, and throw them into the furnace. So we noted it was so hot that the guards perished. Well, in the narrative, no time passes at all between the moment where they go, they fall into the furnace, and then the king looks into the furnace and he sees something that he cannot believe. He knows that there were three men tied up that were tossed in. But when he looks in, he sees four men and they're not tied up. They're walking around unharmed. And he goes on to describe the appearance of this fourth man as a son of the gods. There's something unusual about this mysterious fourth figure. Then he cries out, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, servants of the most high God, come out and come here. And the three men come out from the fire. Everyone was there, right? This is the big inauguration. Everyone's there watching this. And they all witnessed this miracle. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, I love this. They're quiet in their resistance. They're not showy or prideful. They're kind of just quietly resisting. But God was not quiet in his deliverance. He put his power on display for all to see. The text tells us in verse 27 that everyone saw the fire had not had any power over the bodies of those men. Their hair was not singed. Their cloaks were not burnt. They didn't even smell like fire. And once again, Nebuchadnezzar recognizes the greatness of their God. Once again, he's reminded there's a power greater than his own. His question has been answered. Who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Yahweh. He is able to deliver doesn't look like he converts at this moment, but he does make a decree that no one may speak against their God. They've won some sort of religious freedom. He promotes them again, much to the chagrin, no doubt, of the jealous wise men who are trying to bring them down. They actually get elevated and they continue. They go on serving in the empire. Friends, God is able to deliver us and he will deliver us. How he will do it, when he will do it, we do not know. The most powerful thing about this text is that God did not deliver them from the fire. He delivered them through the fire. And we don't know who the fourth man is. A lot of people look at that and they say, that's Jesus. It's some sort of pre-incarnation uh, appearance of Jesus. Other people say, no, it's probably an angel. It doesn't really matter exactly who it was. The point is that God was present with them in the fire. They were not alone. We are not alone. Whatever the kinds of trials that we face, God is with us 
right in the midst of it. Now, sometimes, often, he will give deliverance in this life, in this moment. We will be able to enjoy it. But much of the deliverance comes through the fire of death. And we will, if we have trusted Christ, emerge on the other side of death and see that death had no power over our bodies. We were not singed by death, nor will death have any lingering effect over us. In resurrection, we will be completely delivered. Many Christians down through history have been martyred for their faith. Many Christians around the world today are being martyred for their faith. And it is good to remember them. It's good to remember them in the moment that we're in because we're nowhere close to what people are facing. I know the heat's being turned up in our culture. That's real. And yet we're not anywhere close to what people have faced and do face around the world. And so it's good that we bring our brothers and sisters to mind to remember the trials they had, to remember the deaths they died and to celebrate that God was able and God did deliver them. One of the first martyrs of the early church was a man named Polycarp. Polycarp was bishop of Smyrna, which is in modern-day Turkey. He was probably discipled by the apostle John. When he was an old man, the Roman authorities finally came for him. And friends urged him to run and to hide and to appease them, to calm them down. He did for a little while. He relocated outside of town. But it was made known to him that he would die at the hands of the Romans. And so when the authorities eventually caught up with him, he did not resist. He did not run. The authorities bound him. They took him away. And he was sentenced to be burned alive in the fire. Tradition tells us that he responded with these words. Eighty and six years I have served him, and he has done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king and my savior? You threaten me with a fire that burns for a season and after a little while is quenched, but you are ignorant of the fire of everlasting punishment that is prepared for the wicked. Polycarp knew that God would deliver him through the fires of death. And that is what allowed him to resist bowing his knee to any God but his king and his savior. In closing, I ask if you would join me as I pray the collect prayer for the feast day of Polycarp, which is celebrated on February 23rd. Would you bow your heads? Almighty God, you gave to your servant Polycarp boldness to confess the name of our Savior Jesus Christ before the rulers of this world and courage to die for his faith. Grant that we also may be ready to give an answer for the faith that is in us and to suffer gladly for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is alive and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen.